Hey everyone, it's Jeff from MCS Mag, and we're now at the end of our six-part series of my personal military stories with a survival twist. In our final episode, I saved what I consider to be the best for last. Now, I'll tell you, this one gets pretty dark and serious, but it's extremely critical that you pay close attention and take what I have to say very seriously. Plus, I have a special announcement I'm really excited to share with you at the very end, so be sure to stay tuned. Let's get started. bullets were flying, your adrenaline surging, would you hit your target? If the world as you know it crumbled tomorrow, collapsed into chaos, would you know how to survive? If you and those you loved were cornered by a gang, violently attacked, could you protect them? Could you protect them? Could you protect them? Firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. Hey there, welcome back everyone. I am Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat and Survival Magazine and executive director of the New World Pitcher Alliance with another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat that you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. Okay, we're, we are finally here at the last episode in our six-part series where what I've been doing is sharing personal stories from my experience in the military and sharing the lessons that I've learned from those experiences that have made me more prepared to face a real-world crisis. Now, we covered a lot of stories and a lot of survival tips, but this one I have to share with you today is really, really personal to me, and it's led me to make some major changes not only in my life, but in how our company operates and how we give back to, to our community. In fact, I have a very special announcement that I want to share with you at the end of this broadcast. So I'm asking you to stick around because uh, we've been up to a lot over here at MCS headquarters. And I'm really, really excited about this. And I'm really excited to really share it with you. So, okay. All right. First, the story that starts all of this. So this goes back to my very first combat experience and this is when I was with the 193rd Infantry Battalion in Panama and uh, I had come into Panama thinking it was just going to be a, a blissful paradise. I was stationed there and I had I think a couple of weekends sitting on the beach with my little drink with my umbrella in it and then the next weekend there were bullets flying everywhere. So if you aren't familiar with Operation Just Cause, this was my first combat experience and this was when Nor we basically ousted Noriega from being the dictator of Panama. So, but the, the, when we actually went into combat, the very first raid that we did. So in my infantry company, we were targeting a, basically it was an FBI station. It was a barracks of soldiers and, and law enforcement. And the whole point was to try and bypass any early warning system that they had. So, our attack was done in the nighttime when there would be less people out on the streets so we could minimize civilian casualties. And the whole goal was to just get to the front door in basically like a, a, a gigantic SWAT team and essentially take the barracks with the minimal amount of casualties that we possibly have. The whole point here was to get the element of surprise. Now, this was the first time pretty much everybody had been in combat before. We're going back to 1990. So... Um, it was or actually 18, it was the end of 89. Um, so, so we were, we drove up to a certain point and we were in Deuce Nass. Now we had a plan in place. Okay. 
we had supporting troops in place. We had, we had, we had our sand tables done. We had gone over the operations orders. Everybody knew what their role was. So we were ready to go at a moment's notice. We finally got the word. We drove out there and everybody was on the deuce and a half. And then it was go, 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 go. Everybody jumped off the the deuce and a half. And we were, we were right in front of where the barracks were. Again, still trying to get the element of surprise. The problem was one of the first soldiers that was off the back of the trucks slammed his body up against one of the cars that was in front there, and the car alarm went off. And what it did was it aroused the suspicion of the, of the soldiers and the law enforcement that, well, I say corrupt law enforcement. These were like the entire Noriega basically force was essentially corrupt, basically running drugs, weapons, and everything. So in essence, it, it spoiled our element of surprise from the very, very beginning. Okay. From there, there were bullets flying everywhere. Okay. Uh, so that was one thing. So jumping off the truck, I took my, um, my RTO and I, I quickly got to a place of cover where we had, we had protection from bullets and we could fire back. Um, and I noticed when I was looking around and I remember it almost happening like in slow motion. But I remember that there were people that were getting into position just as they were, they were supposed to. There were other people that were just trying to find a place of cover. Just, I mean, obviously you don't want to be standing out when there's a bunch of bullets, right? So everybody, it was really just a clusterfuck. And basically people were trying to do what they were supposed to do, but it, it was, it was a complete cluster. And part of that was a breakdown in the plan. And then part of it, I noticed looking around is that there were soldiers that were crying. Um, there were soldiers that were crying behind cars because they were, they were just so freaked out. There were soldiers that were hard charging toward the objective to be able to get into position to be able to take the, take the barracks. And, and I, I just remember thinking at that time, the people that I saw crying a lot of times were our best soldiers. They were the, the ones who were pinned down or frozen in fear were sometimes our best soldiers. And the ones that I saw charging up toward our objective were sometimes the people who you did not think would ever be the ones to go hard charging, facing bullets and, and excel under the stress of combat. And I just remember that being really, really, uh, just really sticking out in my head. Like, why is he up there? And why is this guy huddled down behind a car frozen? Or in some cases, these guys were crying. And so I share this story. I won't go into the rest of the, of the battle and how everything turned out there. Nonetheless, we, we took our objective. Um, there were casualties, but I mean, it was, it was a, it was a good, strong mission to come back from. And we, we were able to accomplish the, the objective. We did not lose any people in our raid. So, but that's, that's neither here nor there. This, this story is really about that, that initial experience and how it affected not only the mission, but how it also affected the people that were a part of that mission. I say people. Okay. So let me give you my lessons learned from this that we always do at the end of these military stories. Okay. Um, lesson number one, I always give you like three, remember, I always give you like three tips that come out of this. So lesson number one is you can pretty much count on things never going as planned. Okay. They oftentimes did within our training missions because we essentially had a well-organized training exercise. We had 
prior knowledge usually of what the objective was. We were sometimes familiar with the terrain. So training was really about getting down the basics of tactics. It wasn't as much about adapting to different different scenarios. There was certainly part of that when it was force on force and we were a an, an offensive operation going against a defense that might have different obstacles in place and things like that. But for the most part, training exercise, you can do your best, but it's really about getting the basics of the tactics down. When it comes time for a real live event, things hardly ever go as planned. Okay, so this is very important for you to know and and take as as part of your own survival planning because you can't just you can't just plan for the best case scenario. And that's really what a lot of people are doing. I know we say we're planning for the worst, like we're planning for disaster, we're planning for collapse. But within those plans, what we typically find is that people are planning for the best case scenario. And what you need to do is you need to have a backup scenario. I'll give you two quick examples of what I mean by this. Just from the, we've been talking about bugging out, right? So as one example, you, let's say that you have a, a safety retreat set up. Or some people, you know, a lot of people don't even have a safety retreat. So, so I'll give you three examples. One is a lot of people, especially people who are older or might be disabled, aren't even planning for a bug out scenario. They just figure, well, I can't go anyway, so I'm just going to stay at home and survive in place. Wrong answer. We talk about the different levels or the different phases of an evacuation or different phases of survival in uh, our survival guide. You can go, it's free. You can get it over at survivalgearsecrets.com. That talks about the different phases of a of a, of a survival scenario. So one, that's where people might not be planning their backup of being f when they're forced to actually leave their home because a disaster is in the path. But those people that do have a plan and maybe have a place to go to, well, what if you can't get to that place? What if traffic is stopped in there? What if a disaster is headed toward that area too? What if that's going to be affected? You have to be able to have a backup plan in an opposite direction, as an example, to be able to make sure that you have something there in case your initial plan gets all screwed up. Okay, and the third example I'll give for, uh, to you for that is the people that have bug out bags. They feel like they have an evacuation plan and they're keeping that bag at home. They might have it in a closet. They might have it in their office. They might have it in the garage someplace, but they're really proud that it's ready to go, except that an instant disaster happens and you were at work. And now you're, you can't even get to your home to get to your survival supplies, which is why we always say the best place to have your bug out bag is in the trunk of your car or someplace secured behind your seat. If you've got a truck or somewhere in the, the cab of your truck, wherever it is, it should be with you in your vehicle. Same thing goes. My wife has hers in her vehicle. I have my son's in my vehicle as well in case he's at school and I need to grab him and go. We don't even have to go home. If we need to get out of Dodge, we can get ahead of the pack very, very quickly. So just some, those are just some examples of how you always want to have a backup plan in place. As they say, you know, two is one and one is none, right? That's a common survival expression. And that's, that's what I mean by that is having a backup plan. Okay, number two uh, lesson out of this is that you never know who will give out, give up, or be the hero. So as I said, you know, when I looked around and I, and like I said, it happened like it was in slow motion. And I know that was the adrenaline, just kind of slowing everything down. You get time distortion when you're in combat like that. And just recognizing that I just, the, some of the people that were, that were really like taking the charge, taking the lead were ones like, what? You know, Jones is up there? What? 
like it, it didn't like it didn't compute, right? It wouldn't be what you would think would happen when the chips are down and and bullets are flying and everybody's just trying to survive, right? So, uh, but you know, and that's what I mean. Like you never know who is going to give out on you, give up on you, or is going to be the hero. So there's lots of really kind of lessons that come with that, you know. First of all, in the heat of the moment, you're typically going to fall back on your training. Okay, so that means that you have to train. I remember when I was when I was going through it, I didn't think about, oh my God, am I going to die? Oh my God, you know. I mean, it really was like my training, you know. So I felt the adrenaline because I always trained really hard. I always pushed myself in training, and I didn't try to always kind of take the easy way out. So you've got to be able to push yourself. You've got to make sure that your training, whatever you do, whether you're doing firearms training at the range or dry fire training at home or you're doing survival training instead of just going camping. Like I've told people, anytime I go camping with my son with the Boy Scouts, like I'm not putting up a tent. I'm putting up my poncho from that I used in the Army with a couple of, a couple of bungee cords. I'm not breaking out the sleeping bag. I'm using my Tact Bivy um, Mylar sleeping bag. And I'm using that and putting it to the test. So I'm really making sure that I'm pushing myself in everything that I do. If it's firearms training, I like, I like to make it as realistic as possible. That's why we do force-on-force -force training with things like Airsoft. Um, because all of those things make a difference when it comes to your training. If there's a big difference in going to the range and shooting at targets than there is even going to paint, play paintball somewhere and you have somebody actually shooting at you. There's a huge difference. Now, paintball is not the same as a Glock. However, the tactics that you employ are way more effective at a lot of times, you know, your, your force on force movement than you'll ever get at any sort of a static range where you're just shooting at targets. Okay. So in the heat of the moment, you'll fall back on your training. So that means that you have to train. Now, when it comes to people, if you have, I mean, you can't, you can't count on somebody who might be in, if you have a survival team, you can't necessarily con consider them a valuable asset just because they talk a good game. Now, if it's somebody that has a combat background, they've been in the military, they have that experience. As we know, even people in the military that, you know, are hard charging, unless they've experienced combat, you really don't know how somebody is going to perform. So the same goes especially for those people that have never really been in the line of fire. Now, people talk a really great game. How many times have you heard some people say, you know, they, they hear about like a home invasion happened or whatever, and like, I can tell you that guy would never get out of my house alive. I would just shoot that guy. I don't, I'd drag him back in the house. You hear these people with this bravado all the time. Okay, I know I hear it all the time. We get, we see these blog posts, um, like comments on our blog posts all the time of people with a lot of bravado that really don't, don't know how, I mean, it's, it's a totally, I'll tell you, any soldier will tell you, it's a totally different thing looking at a person in your sights and pulling the trigger on that person. Okay. So you really don't know how somebody's going to perform. So when you're vetting team members, as an example, then you want to make sure that you are really vetting people. And it's not like they have to have combat experience or be ex law enforcement from LA or something like that, but you do have to train. And again, if you're looking at security, if you're looking at things like, um, you know, having your, your personal defense team together in case of a collapse or you're going to help guard your own houses or businesses or things like that that we've seen, then you've, you've got to get out there and train, particularly if you can use anything like force on force with airsoft or paintball or anything like that. It does make a difference and it, and it will help you to um, when the when the chips are down. 
Okay. Um, which brings me to with these, with, with, with the people part of the equation is, is lesson number three. And excuse my English for this. Plug your ears if you need to. But I can tell you, crisis and combat just fucks with your head. There's, there's just no way around it. You don't get through combat. You don't get through having a bullet pass by you. You don't get through pulling a trigger and seeing somebody fall down in front of you. You don't get out of that, no matter how much they deserved it. You don't get out of it without it fucking up your head. And, you know, we, we see this a lot now. Um, fortunately, a lot of the drill sergeants these days in the military, and I've talked with some soldiers, and a lot of them have combat experience. So these drill sergeants are telling these guys finally, like, look, you're going to go over and you're going to see some shit that you've never seen in your life and it's going to fuck with your head. And you will get through it. It's going to take time. It's going to take work. But just know that going in. Now, that's a lot better than trying to prepare people by just think, you know, trying to tell them everything's going to be okay and letting them figure it out on their own. Because it, what it does is it raises up the level of their training in basic training because now you're not just trying to get through basic training. Now you realize that you're trying to learn the skills that are going to save your life out there on the battlefield. Okay? But there really is no way around it. So you really need to be, for yourself, the, the strong leader that your, that your family needs or that your survival team needs. And, and that really puts a lot of ownership on you because I know that my family is not going to go through these things, right? Like I know I've told you many times before, my, my wife doesn't like guns. Um, she's finally going to be getting to the range though. We're finally getting there. Okay. Little by little, she's coming on board. Um, but do I want my son to experience that kind of, you know, I mean, he goes to paintball with me. We play, we play airsoft out on our property a lot and things like that. So we get that in. That's fun. That's a way to get in training, so to speak. But I'm not going to expect them to go through what I went through that I that I remember is, is going to help me be a strong leader. OK, so you need to be the strong leader that your family needs. And that comes down to getting the most realistic training that you can possibly get so that you can be there for them. OK, so part of that is is in pushing yourself. So what I want you to do is listen. If you haven't already listen to episode number 138. And that's where I talk about, that's, that's a podcast episode number 138. That's where I tell you to seek the suck. Okay. Seek the suck. You'll hear, hear a lot of people like Navy SEALs say embrace the suck. I'm saying seek the suck to really mentally prepare yourself for hard times. And I give some examples in there too about how you can do that, but it really is about pushing yourself beyond what you think your limits are. It doesn't have to be huge. It doesn't have to be a long period of time, but just these little things to keep kind of expanding your comfort zone so that when crisis does hit, you're not trying to deal with your own challenges and reactions to a crisis. You can be there for your family to be the strong pillar, that anchor that they're going to need when that crisis hits because you don't know how they're going to actually respond. Okay, but you never know what's going to trigger these emotions or what can cause these problems or or others that are with you. So you really and this is another part of it is you need to monitor your team. And by team, I could mean your family. Okay, so just because you may be strong, just because you might be in law enforcement or you might be a soldier or you've gone through training and you think you've done things that your family hasn't done doesn't mean that they're going to be that strong. Okay, so a lot of times. People that are strong have this way of projecting on others that you need to suck it up because that's what worked for you. You need to just drive on because that was what worked for you. 
Not everybody is going to be able to do that. And not everybody is going to show the signs like they're not just going to come out and tell you like I'm freaked out or I'm scared or whatever. In fact, a lot of times they might hide that as we've seen in the military. Okay. And they just kind of, they just kind of suck it all in and try to put on this rough exterior. And you've got to be able to look for the signs yourself of anxiety. You've got to be able to do check-ins. I did this with my, with my team, with my squad all the time when we were in combat. We just did personal check-ins one-on-one. You know, and part of that is being able to to um, to open up yourself and explain how you're feeling. But, you you know, you've got to be able to get through it. And really, that's that's the only thing that got me through combat was realizing that I did not have an option. OK, so for me during combat, um, you know, like I say, you never know what is going to trigger different things in different people and how they're going to react to it. So a very personal story for me, I mean, during combat. I was hard charging. I was one of the guys that was taking the objective. Okay. I was pushing on. It was second nature to me. It didn't like it. it, it I didn't ever stop to think, Oh my God, am I going to die? Not during combat. Okay. Um, it wasn't until we took um, another objective, which was not in, it was in an urban area. We took another building that was a key objective because it had good lookout. Um, it was in a, it was actually in a bank building. And, um, so we, we took that and I just remembered like that, uh, it was like the second or third night and we had, uh, somebody said, somebody, there was a whisper going on that there was a phone available up inside of the, like the bank president's office, but it was kept hush hush because we didn't want the commanding officer to be able to take it away from everybody. So, um, I let my soldiers go up there. And go ahead and make a call back home because I know, like, we didn't have cell phones, right? So everything, we knew people were watching this back home. They were worried about us. They didn't know if we were alive or dead or what was going on. So I let my soldiers go up there, and then I went up there. And I just remember um, calling my family on the phone. And my my uh, fiancé and my, t- my two daughters uh, were at home. My, my mom picked up the phone, and immediately she heard my voice. She turned it over to my to my fiancé. And I just remember breaking down and, and sobbing uncontrollably. I could not even get a single word out. And my daughters got on the phone, and I, I, I just wanted to hear their voices and let them know I was safe. And I could just, I could barely talk. And I didn't even know where this was all coming from. I felt, I felt strong. I felt empowered. I was in control. I was hard charging. I was taking the objective. But all of a sudden, when I heard their voices, I, it re- I realized that this was probably going to be the last time that I'm ever going to hear their voices. And, and I just I, I broke down. Now, I recovered from that because I had no choice, because I knew that the only way I was going to get back home was to just put on that rough exterior. I just had to assume, I had to accept my own death because hiding behind a car was not going to take our objective, was not going to take out the enemy, and was not going to to get me home alive. If people were out there charging, but they were onesies and twosies, well, they're going to get mowed down, right? And then all of a sudden they're coming after us or we're retreating. That's not, that's just not an option. It's not an option. So I sucked it all up and stuffed it away. And we got through the the, the next several days uh, with combat. And then all throughout the year, since I was stationed there, the rest of my job was going out into the jungles, finding bad guys that got away. So um, but the, the point of this is, is that you never know what's going to trigger it. And it's always going to fuck with your head. 
It wasn't until years later, and I'm talking just a few years ago, that I finally realized that it was PTSD that had essentially destroyed two of my marriages, had blown an engagement that I had, and had been working on my current marriage, my wife right now, um, just kind of just kind of picking away at it from things that I'd experienced in combat and some of the stuff that I'd stuck that I'd stuck away. Now, for others, they have it much worse than I did. You know, I mean, 20 soldiers a day or 22, if you listen to some accounts, are, are committing suicide due to combat related PTSD. And for those who don't commit suicide, these these soldiers often face a life filled with turmoil, sleepless nights, nightmares, self-medication through drugs and alcohol, broken families, divorce, anger issues, um, all these things that are, with these triggers that are stuffed away inside of them force it to come out. And that, and that can take a number of different ways. There are some people that are freaked out by, there are some people that are freaked out by shooting people or seeing their friends shot. But there are other pe- other soldiers who enjoyed that part of it because you know you're taking down somebody who is a is a terrorist or or something like that like there's there's a pride in that but your trigger might be um it might be just driving in a vehicle a lot of people um that have combat related PTSD have problems with driving in a vehicle because there might have been an IED that went off or you know for their vehicle or a friend of mine um experienced just where he was at a stoplight and a somebody was yelling at him in, in in um in a foreign language and then opened up the car door and got in now the guy wasn't there to to blow them up or anything but they didn't know that like everybody just kind of froze and didn't know what to do and it was it was purely um there was there was nothing that the guy did he was he didn't mean anything by violence but now just riding in a car can bring back that trigger of oh my god I, I could have died that guy could have blown me up I would never see my family again so you really don't know and for these soldiers that are coming back I mean the care that's provided for them by the VA or by other organizations really is not good and, and you can ask any soldier you know because the the military is still fumbling around trying to figure this out they're putting them on pills. I mean, that's one of the, the most basic things they do is put them on anti-anxiety drugs or other other things or or just, you know, uh, pain reliever drugs. Okay, they have therapy that they have to go through with doctors. Now, any of these, anybody, any soldier that is on any sort of status, like jump status or anything like that, as soon as you raise your hand, you say, I think I've got PTSD. Well, guess what? You come off of jump status. You come off of status on whatever you're doing because it's a... It's a safety mechanism that the military has because they don't want to, you know, it's like you told them I'm having issues. If they put you back out there and you start shooting your own soldiers, well, all of a sudden they're liable for it. So a lot of soldiers don't say anything because they don't want to come off of status and they want to maintain their status, first of all, not to mention they don't want to be made fun of or be looked down upon. So a lot of soldiers stuff this away. But even the therapist that they go to see you know, a lot of times the soldiers realize that they have no idea what it's like. I mean, you can't go to school for this thing, okay? You've got to really experience it or be in a group with soldiers who have really opened themselves up and, and you can feel their emotions, okay? Now, over the years, I've tried several ways of helping that my fellow brothers and sisters in arms that are suffering from combat-related PTSD. And I know, I mean, I've worked with different organizations that use dogs, that use horses, 
Um, float tanks was a thing that I was, um, I was trying to uh, get some soldiers involved in to be able to heal themselves with kind of this alpha state within uh, sensory deprivation flotation tanks, any sort of holistic help that they can get. And all of these kind of help some people to a degree, right? Or in some cases, it may almost seem miraculous. Maybe somebody spending time with horses is enough to help calm them and work out, work through their issues. But for the most part, what I found is that it's really most, pretty much all the soldiers that suffer from it pretty much just come down to, well, there's nothing you can do to cure it. It's just a matter of managing the symptoms. And I disagree with that because I really feel like there's there's a cure out there. And I really feel like I found it. I, mean, I was really, I was one of those people that, okay, let's find ways to manage the symptoms, but always looking for a cure. And then a buddy of mine from the 10th Mountain Division, which was my first unit, called me um, looking for some help with an organization that he'd become involved in that was getting more, really miraculous recovery results with spec op soldiers, pararescue jumpers, guys who have seen, they've been in the shit over and over and over again. They've seen the dead bodies. They've, they've gone through the combat. They've shot at people. They've killed people. All the things that, that create these triggers. And one person has really stumbled upon a way that decodes those triggers, recodes them back into the brain, and really erases those triggers. It makes it possible for the soldiers themselves to heal themselves, be able to manage their own symptoms permanently. Permanently. The triggers are gone. And I'm not talking about a law. It's not drug related. There's no pill involved with it. It really comes down to a methodology that Dr. Carrie Elk has discovered and worked through and developed to be able to rewire these personal triggers that are causing so much suffering in soldiers' lives. And it's finally curing some of these soldiers who are who have suffered for so long with sleepless nights, with drug abuse, with alcohol abuse, all these things. Now, you may have heard me. Uh, we did a fun drive for Dr. Elk and the Elk Institute a while ago. Um, I created my own organization. It's not a nonprofit, but we are working on, with nonprofits. And uh, it's Operation Save Our Soldiers. You may have heard me talk about it before. But it's my, it's my personal mission to help my fellow brothers and sisters in arms to be able to overcome combat-related PTSD. And the big announcements that I have that I have for you right now is that we are teaming up with the Elk Institute and Dr. Carrie Elk to put all the resources that we can behind her to be able to expand her program and reach more soldiers. We'll be sponsoring soldiers to be able to give them the cure that they're looking for. We're going to be providing the Elk Institute with resources to help them to be able to scale their operation, to be able to reach more soldiers. They're really in need of resources. Money, yes but really in need of resources so that we can take a lot of the pressure off of the people that are really helping out there. And we've got a lot of, we have a lot of combat related um, or combat focused people, sergeant majors. We've, we've got just an amazing board of directors and a group that's helping out here, but they're starved for resources. So we are going to be putting all of our, we're going to be taking all the resources that we have and supporting them with that as well. And I'm really, really excited about that. Now, June is coming up and June is National PTSD Awareness Month. June 27th is National PTSD Awareness Day. And we have a lot of things that are coming up in the month of June. Um, we are going to be giving a, a percentage of our, of our, um, of our uh, sales are going to be going to the Elk Institute 
to be able to sponsor more soldiers. We're going to be getting more of our websites that I network with, more involved with this as well. We're going to be coming out with, I'm going to need your help. We're coming out with a logo for Operation Save Our Soldiers. I'm going to look for your vote on that as well. So hopefully you're on our newsletter list. I'm going to put you out, get you out an email, uh, an email that's going to ask you to vote on our logo so you can be a part of it. I want you to be a part of helping to save these soldiers who are suffering. The last time we did a fund drive, we had, we, we uh, got over $21,000 that we that we were able to donate to the Elk Institute. I could tell you those that money saved soldiers' lives. We even had people that, don't, we had one person that donated $5,000, another person donated $2,000. Amazing patriotic people who jumped in there to be able to help. But even $5 helps, right? So it, it all counts. And I'm going to be looking for your help going forward. And some of it might just be, hey, we'll donate 100% of sales um, for this day or for this product over to the Elk Institute. So this way you get something. It doesn't cost you anything more, but you're still helping out with our, um, with our, the organization that, that we're supporting. Okay. So I'm really, really excited that we're putting all of our resources here with the Elk Institute. Um, I really appreciate all the support that you out there have given to us as a company, as well as to our soldiers and thanking them for the, for their service and supporting them with the help that they need when they come back from doing their job and keeping us all protected and safe and free. Okay, so more information coming up uh, for the month of June. But uh, thank you so much for listening in to this sixth episode period. We're going to get back on our regular track for our podcast episodes now. And until our next broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying, prepare, train, and survive. modern combat and survival we hope you've enjoyed the show you can help us out by rating our podcast on itunes and leaving a comment you can check us out on facebook at facebook.com backslash modern combat and survival and don't forget to claim your free subscription to modern combat and survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com lock and load and we'll see you next time This has been Modern Combat and Survival.